So, Karen, as we move into a world of linked data, the nature of data itself seems to be changing. What is library data in a world of linked data? Library data, the way we see it today, is really not so much data, even though we, we think it is. But library data tends to be a nice, standardized document that describes resources of the library holds or is interested in. It's more of a document than a data format uh, or, or what you would call actionable data, partly because we're still producing something very similar to what we produced in the days of card catalogs. We've, it's been both our advantage that we've been doing this for 150 years, but there's also a downside to that, which is that unlike some people coming in, for example, into linked data who have been producing data only for 10 or 15 years and convert it to linked data, we have been producing data for 150 years. So our data still has in it um, some wonderful sort of Victorian elements uh, of um, ways that people viewed books and information many, many years ago. What this means to me in terms of moving to linked data is there are people working to try to understand how we can take the MARC record, which is what now encodes or marks up that document that we create, um, how to take that and turn it into linked data. And I think that that would end up actually being pretty much the same mistake that we made when we moved from cards to machine-readable data, which is that we would have a tendency to carry forward some of these centuries-old traditions that we have, like headings that are designed to be searched uh, in left to right in alphabetical order. So can you give a, an example of the sort of data currently, say, in a Mark 21 record that is sort of hung over from, uh, from Victorian times or at least pre-modern pre data? Pre-modern data, yeah, quite a bit, actually. For example, the way that we deal with authors. Um, libraries have been standardizing the forms, the identities of authors probably longer than anyone else. Uh, the identities of persons, really, they, they tend to be authors. But we do it by using the display string that we're going to both show to the user, uh, use for the alphabetical order. That's why the authors in library data are always Smith, John, and never John Smith, um, so that they're in the alphabetical order. Um, if the name of the person changes, or for example, you know, you may have seen that there's often a birth date on an author's name. Well, then when the person dies, you add the death date. This string that we've been using to identify the person then changes. An identifier that changes isn't a good identifier. So using the display form for the identifier, although it was the only way to do it in the card world, and it was a brilliant way to do it in the card world, is not going to carry forward uh, into this um, larger environment where your data is going to be processed by machines rather than being read by humans. So what's a better way of identifying an author? 
A better way of identifying an author is using something called a URI, Uniform Resource Identifier, which is essentially something that looks very much like a URL. They tend to start HTTP. Uh, colon slash slash just like a URL but it is a sort of a nonsense string that represents that author that will always represent that author regardless of how you display their name so the display is separated from the identification and one of the real advantages of this is that you can choose different displays under different circumstances sometimes you can have Smith comma John sometimes you can have John Smith when it comes to things like subjects, what the identifier allows you to do is that you can actually have your data in multiple languages because the display is not the identifier. So you can attach to that identifier any number of different displays that you can use in multilingual catalogs, that you can use to show different displays to children than to adults, or to use different displays under different circumstances. A URI, URI is a URL that doesn't necessarily point at a page, but points at, a, at some, some data. Is, is that essentially? <clears throat> yes, it, it's quite confusing, and, and there, are, uh, there could be a discussion about whether it's a good idea to use the same form for identification as well as for locations on the web. One of the reasons why many people like the idea of using an identifier that has the same form as a locator is that there already is a way that you could um, use that identifier to locate information. So for example, in Wikipedia, the URL uh, that you see at the top of the Wikipedia page can also be used as an identifier. And if it's used as an identifier, it could be made clickable and take you to the Wikipedia page that tells you more about that person or that topic. It, it tends to blur the difference between locating and identifying. And I th think it's a bit confusing at times. It's confusing when you see this string that looks like it should link to something because it doesn't have to when it's an identifier. But that is the reason why many people are seeing the use of a URL for identification as being an advantage. So how much of, a, of the, say, the catalog information, the bibliographic information about a book in the modern world should consist of URIs? Um, I've done some experimentation with that, and there's, uh, there's actually a fair amount. So library, the library catalog record tends to have sort of two types of information. There's something that librarians call description. And this is where the librarian, the cataloger, uh, puts the title of the book and what's on the title page and how many pages it has and whether it has an edition statement. There's a lot that is taken directly from the source itself. And the intention is that that acts as a surrogate for the work because obviously you're looking in a catalog you can't open every book on the shelf and see what it's about so the, the catalog record acts as a surrogate in addition catalogers create a lot of things that we call headings a heading is like that controlled string for the author's name um, that actually there's an entire file separate database of names of people 
and what that controlled string is. There are headings for certain kinds of titles. There are headings for subjects. There are headings that link uh, this record, this information, to something like a series that this book is a part of. So we have these two types of, of data. We've got the heading data, which is controlled. Those are all coming out of controlled lists, controlled formats. Uh, they often have an existence of their own in another file. Then we have the descriptive data, which is basically text, kind of free text, although some of it is copied directly from the book. And in addition, in the Mark 21 record, we have some uh, actual data, coded data. So we have a place where you can say whether or not this is a FES script. We have a coded place where you put in the date that's actually, you know, for a, a sequence of, of four numbers. We have coded information for language, for place of publication. Um, and that's really the only data that exists in the library records is that coded information it hasn't been used much in the current library systems, but it has great possibilities in a new environment, especially for computational use. Uh, so would you favor having more of those fields um, presented as coded data? I think that there's a certain amount of what is included in the library metadata that could never be coded, that is just going to have to be text. The thing is, is that we should make sure that we code everything that can be coded because that's the data that's going to play best if we interact with the semantic web. So things like number of pages, the size of the book, um, whether it's edition one or edition two, um, what type of thing it is, whether it's a DVD or a Blu-ray, all of that, where possible, should be coded. And we have to assume that the data that can't be coded is primarily for human consumption rather than for machine processing. So how do we come up with an agreed-upon set of codes, say, for media types like DVD? Or, mm -hmm. um, well, actually, in a way, in the library world, we, we already have mechanisms for that because we do have lists of codes for things. As a matter of fact, in the MARC record, there's something like close to 150 different lists of things that have been given a specific code. So the, uh, we just, for, for libraries, we really need to just continue on doing that. One of the things that is a bit um, unfortunate is that that data hasn't been made available to others. And I think it could be very useful outside the library world, but we really have been in our own world, keeping these things in our own databases and haven't shown other people that we already have many of these lists. You know, we have lists of, you know, the different kinds of colors that you would use to describe a photograph. You know, is it sepia? Is it black and white? Is it, you know, full color? Is it Kodachrome? You know, we, we have a lot of that. Um, but because our data has stayed inside the library databases and we haven't really shown that very much even to, to our own library users, people don't realize that we have it there. URIs take on a special significance and utility in the world of linked data when they point to a spot that other um, sources are also pointing at, because then you know those two things are talking about the same thing. Does a library uh, first have to decide that this is where they're going to point for their author's authority file, and this is where they're going to point for uh, uniform titles or whatever? Mm -hmm. 
the library world tends to, to do things in a cooperative way. So we've already begun actually creating a place where we decide what the identity, where we will put the, the identity for a, uh, for a person and how we can share that URI, and that's the Virtual International Authority file. For many other things, we haven't yet. Because it's just an OCLC VF. OCLC's VF, yeah, yeah. VF.org. Um, for many other things, we haven't done that. I think we're very name and person conscious, of course. Um, and so that was what was done first. Library of Congress has already created URIs for the Library of Congress subject headings. So that's beginning. And the ideal thing, of course, is that where a, um, a controlled list has a, has a maintaining agency, they would be the ones who would create the URI. Problem is, is that, of course, many of the maintaining agencies aren't there yet. So we don't have, for example, a standard way to do a URI for something as key as an ISBN, uh, which, you know, which is a difficulty. When you speak to people who are involved in the semantic web, they recognize that it's not going to be the case that everybody in the world is going to use exactly the same identifier for the same thing. That, and the semantic web itself is designed with ways that you, you can cluster identifiers and say, these are all talking about the same thing. And that's exactly what we do with VF, with the authority file, is bring together that information from about 20 different uh, national libraries from around the world, and there will be more joining in. And those, um, that cluster then becomes a, a grouping of identities that we're, we're saying these are the same one. What will be the what will the world be like once this data, in fact, is made usable and in, in the ways that you're describing? Well, I, I I don't think I can predict that, but I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to, and what I'm looking forward to is a web where users look for information, and sometimes they go off and they find someone's website and sometimes they end up at a blog and sometimes they end up at Wikipedia and sometimes they end up at the library. That for them, they don't have to decide where they want to go. They just look for their information and follow, uh, follow paths that are provided uh, through the linked data. Because one of the things that I find very difficult both with the, the searching in libraries and even searching on the internet through something like Google or Bing is that you can find things if you know what you're looking for, but there's very little just sort of random discovery. And what we know from things like YouTube where you go on and you know you watch a cat video and then along the side there's something, people will follow along with things that, that no algorithm would say, this is the next thing this person should look at but that we are all, we're very curious. Um, many of us are the kind of people that if we look in a paper encyclopedia or dictionary, we end up reading not only the article we went for, but turning pages and reading more and more. And I want people to have that discovery um, experience that combines that, uh, that kind of randomness 
and then takes you to the library from there. Thank you very much. Thank you.